It's got a soul, this here old farm It falls asleep inside my arms We walk the fields under the stars For love is here, Goldshaw Farms Welcome to the Goldshaw Farm Podcast In each episode of this podcast, we bring you stories about people who are homesteading, farming, or just chasing their dreams. And I'm your host, Morgan Gold. And as you guys know, um, this podcast has been on a little bit of a hiatus, but I'm excited that this episode here marks the start of season three. Um, There's some changes that you're going to notice. Number one, um, now as of officially about two weeks ago, I I am a full-time farmer and uh, content creator. So I no longer have a day job, so I'm going to have a little bit more time to put towards projects like this. Number two, I have a live studio audience. And uh, if you guys follow our Facebook page, you'll be able to ever join the studio audience for future episodes um, where, you know, basically you get to hang out. And so I'm seeing all my friends like Pigeon Last and Phil and Nancy and Roberta and Hope and Sarah. Everybody's all hanging out here chatting away. So you might actually hear me in some of these podcast episodes now start to respond to some questions that pop up there. And uh, yeah, it this is meant to be a podcast to both tell the stories of other farms as well as the story that's happening with our farm and, and, you know, kind of give you guys a quick update on what's happening with our farm. We are in the winter lull. Um, so it's, it is, as I'm recording this January of 2022 here in Northern Vermont, Peachum, Vermont, to be exact. Uh, the weather has been cold the last couple of weeks. We've had a lot of negative temps. I think, uh, the low today was about negative eight. Um, the low tomorrow, I think, is going to be negative 12. I think the low later this week is going to be like negative 18. Um, and, and so and uh, it's, it's just it's cold. There's not a lot to do outside right now. I've been focused on just doing my basic farm chores, you know, feeding hay and getting water to the cattle, getting water and food to the birds, um, you know, cleaning out poop. Um, the ducks stay in the same duck house that they've always stayed in for the last couple of years. The chickens and geese actually moved to new quarters this winter, so they live in a hoop coop. Uh, hoop coop, if you're not familiar with it, it is a gigantic structure. It's uh, gigantic. Maybe that's exaggerating. It's like a, about 60 feet long and 12 feet wide, and it's like covered in greenhouse plastic. That keeps it warm. I've done some experiments where we've had like negative 10 outside and like 20 or 30 degrees inside, so it stays warm there. It also stays warm from the, the composting of uh, a lot of the bedding. And, and so that's been working out pretty well. Our cattle are actually living in our barn. So for the first time in, I want to say about 40 years, there is, we have cattle in the barn here at Goldshaw Farm. The barn is about 130 years old. It's an old dairy barn. So it used to house lots of cattle for many, many years. And uh, now it's housing cattle again. It used to house dairy cattle. I have cattle for beef now, which is also a new addition to the farm. Um, And and so I think that that's going well. We got uh, two new barn cats this past summer. So we now have three outdoor barn cats. We have Pablo barn cat. We have Molly barn cat. And we have Molly's daughter, Ginny barn cat. I think Ginny barn cat has become like my constant sidekick. She is the most adorable thing. She came here as a kitten. She's spent so much time with me at this point that whenever I go outside, she she just basically walks around and and crawls around on my shoulder. It's it's so funny. You know, I, I was actually shooting a video earlier today 
and um, I was talking about a duck. And so I had a duck in my hands and I was explaining why ducks and ke- ducks and geese don't have their feet freeze or get frostbite. And, and Ginny like scurried up my back and climbed up on my shoulder. And she was just sort of chilling out there as I talked about the duck. She was well behaved. The duck was a little bit nervous. Not sure if Ginny was going to be there to try to eat her or not or do something. But um, yeah, really nothing bad happened there. And uh, <laughs> I got to say it was pretty darn adorable. And for, for you guys who are watching our in our studio live stream audience here, um, I might play a video of this uh, uh, later this evening in this podcast in the after show for say. But uh, <clears throat> yeah, <laughs> I, I had a lot of fun with that. So yeah, Ginny's been great. We also have our indoor uh, barn cat, uh, Lil Barn Cat, who is actually sitting directly behind me as we speak, or as I speak, I should say. Um, she's an indoor only cat after her car accident. Um, she's doing well. She's healed up, but you know she's a little slower. She's lost a step, um, and and I think uh, you know she she ultimately needs uh, a little bit more care, and so that's why she's never going to be an outdoor barn cat again. And then uh, we also have Toby Dog, and Toby Dog's doing great. He guards our farm. He is the backbone of our farm. He is the best partner I could ask for. And right now, as Betsy's asking here in the chat, we're gearing up to have a puppy. Um, so we're going to get another Maremma, uh, which is the breed of dog that Toby is. Uh, Maremma puppy was born out in California a couple months ago. I'm gearing up to go out to California next month to pick her up and bring her back to the farm. And uh, their job is going to be to help protect from coyotes and bobcats and other animals and, and really do the protection thing. Also, if health screens work and all stars align with this new puppy, I'm actually going to start breeding Toby Dog and the new puppy together in a couple of years. And so the idea will be we will we'll actually also start to become a, a certified Maremma uh, breeding operation, which, you know, we're going to be doing ethical breeding. We're only going to have one breeding pair. We're not going to be tr- trying to produce a ton of puppies, but we see a lot of, of um, value in having good dogs that are raised properly on homesteads and farms. And, and that's going to be our plan going forward. You know, one of the biggest things and one of the biggest lessons I've learned about farming ever since, you know, really the last couple of years, but as I've made the switch now to leaving my day job just to focus here on Goldshaw Farm, one of the things I've found is that what you need to do with your farm is have it be a collection of operations. It's not about just doing one thing. It's about doing multiple things. So really today in 2022, if you look at our farm, we have a operation where we focus on ducks for eggs and breeding stock and and that sort of thing. Uh, and live animals. And we have an operation for geese where we focus on eggs and breeding stock and live animals, as well as meat birds. We have a tree operation. We have um, cattle that we've just added to the farm. Um, And so we'll be actually producing our first beef uh, later this fall. And and so, you know, doing something like having puppies too will will be another business that we're in. You know, it's interesting, though. I I do feel a sense of pride right now as I I talk about this idea. Well, now I'm full time focusing on the farm. And and even if you think about it, like another business that we have, which is like content creation and making videos for YouTube and TikTok and Facebook and Instagram and making this podcast and that sort of thing. All of these activities ultimately, you know, are part of the mix of our agricultural businesses. 
Um, and, and one of the things I wanted to talk to about today, and, and this gets to our guest for the day, it's, it's the story of a family farm. You know, some farms kind of go from family to family to family. Like I think uh, if I look at Goldshaw Farm, our farm was first settled in like about the 1830s. And we are now the fifth family to own it. It was settled by a guy, I believe, by the name of Jim Hendry in the 1830s. Um, and then it was purchased by the Shaw family in the 1870s. The Shaw family had it for about 100 years. And in the 1970s, they sold it to a family known as the Sidens. Um, the Shaws had it for about three generations, too. And so when you see us being called Gold Shaw Farm, the fact that they held it that long, the fact that it locally here is still known as the Shaw Farm, that's a big part of our heritage as a farm. Um, and, uh, you know, that to me is, is, is I think, something special. Um, in about 2000-ish or early 2000s, um, it was sold to a couple um, who ran an organic vegetable CSA for a number of years. And they actually had to stop farming operations in 2010. And it sat vacant for a number of years. We purchased the place in 2016, and like I said, that makes us the the let's see, the Hendry's, the Sidens. Oh, sorry, the Hendry's, the Shaws, the Sidens. Yeah, so that makes us the fifth family to own the farm. And <clears throat> so when all of that comes down, that gets me to this place of saying, you know, it's interesting to see it over a span of a almost 200 years, um, a farm get passed along that number of times. The farmer I'm going to talk to today. She actually just took control of her family farm. Um, and and this is, gets crazy. I think she's the eighth generation. So Zoe Kent, who is the owner of Kent Farms in, in Ohio, um, actually sat down to talk to me about being a multi-generation farm, taking over a family farm, working with your farmer and being a farmer. And so, you know, let me introduce you to Zoe and let's find out her story. Hey dad, how big's an acre again? It's one six hundred fortieth of a square mile. And how big is that? Forty-three thousand five hundred and sixty square feet. What? The amount of land plowable in one day by one man and one ox. I have never plowed with an ox before. Try again. It's 16 tennis courts. I had a raging American Girl doll collection. If you know those dolls, they're very bougie, and my parents were not going to buy them for me. So um, I was doing anything and everything I could do to um, raise money for myself. And so when I was like seven or eight, I finally got to mow the yard. And so once I had perfectly straight lines, my dad let me start clipping stubbles in the tractor with... I think it was like a 10-foot wide swath. So I wasn't getting much done, but I couldn't do any big damage to the farm. Um, and then eventually in high school, that turned into being allowed to work ground. And then by my senior year, I was harvesting with the combine. So gradually over time, my dad worked me up. <laughs> so going from the lawnmower <laughs> all the way up to... Like what size combine? Like what are you talking about? Is it just uh, so? Yeah, we have a thirty-five foot bean head. Uh, we only have an eight-row corn head, but yeah, large, large-scale farming. Wow. Now, now, what was your family's farm like as you were growing up? Like 
Describe it for folks who've never heard of it or seen it. Yeah. So it is um, corn and beans farm. And then when I was a little kid, my dad had a cow-calf herd. Um, He kind of did away with that when we were in elementary school, uh, just because you're very much tied to the farm. You can't really go on vacations, um, stuff like that. Um, So yeah, it was corn and beans. And my mom had a job in town. And so dad would be gone all day and we weren't really allowed to like go and interact on like a daily basis just because it's a large operation. Um, It is kind of dangerous to have little kids around large machinery if people aren't keeping an eye on them. Um, So, but we would go in the car and like when he was harvesting, we'd drive past the fields he was in and like, you know, away from him from the car um, and then on like special occasions, we got to go ride with him and stuff. Um, but yeah, it, it, it was definitely more of a business than, uh, we're all working on the farm. I think some people kind of think like, you know, growing up, you're, you're milking cows, you're doing this and that, but we are an all grain farm. So it, it was really mostly just hearing about my dad's day and then, every once in a while going to see him. Got it. And now, did you grow up with brothers and sisters? Were you an only child? Like, what was your situation as a kid? Uh, Yeah, so I have an older brother that's two years older than me, and then a younger sister who is four years younger than me. My brother, uh, he was kind of interested in the farm, but mostly from he's really into nature. He liked being out on the land, walking around fields. And then my sister, uh, she had 4-H projects and she took pictures of the fair. So they were both involved in agriculture, but neither of them really have a passion for it, if you will. And did you have that passion from like that time you were mowing the lawn or was this something that was like an acquired taste that you sort of stumbled upon a little bit later? Uh, Definitely a passion from the beginning. And also as like the middle child, I think it was a little bit of like, uh, I really wanted to hang out with my dad and do what he was doing and and then I think also, like, he really enjoyed working with me, and so we kind of have this special bond. Now, like, you jump to your, like, senior year of high school, right? And you're trying to figure out what college you're going to go to and what you're going to study and all that stuff. Like, what was that process like for you? What were the conversations like between you and your father? Like, what happened there? Yeah, so it was um, definitely always understood that we would go to college uh, just for, you know, a backup because no, you don't need to have a college education to farm, but it's always good just in case. Um, and I actually, I picked my college because of, uh, cheerleading reasons. I made the Ohio state cheerleading team, but they also happen to have a fantastic ag business program. And so they, there you go. Your freshman year, your plan, like you, you're going in there with the plan. Then you're not just like stumbling in there like, yeah, let me dabble at this class or that class. Like you knew like what you wanted to do when you got out of college, huh? Yes. Yeah. It was definitely go get a degree. And it was, man, I think even from like my junior year of high school, we knew I was going to come back to the farm and we kind of knew what our game plan was going to be. And and now why were you so driven with that? Like, like what made that sort of solidified in your mind that this is the career path that like, you know, at 18 years old, you knew you wanted to do. I really, I really don't know per se. And I, I can't think of like a single moment that I was like, oh, this is definitely what I'm going to do. I think it was just, I really enjoyed it. And also, so my dad is 
seven, uh, wow, 76, 67. And so he was kind of using older style equipment. He had a 4440 and an 8440, some older style stuff. And it was either, okay, I need to make this equipment last or I need to upgrade my equipment. And so when I was saying, yes, I'm really interested in doing this, that's when he decided, okay, we're going to keep our equipment up to date and try to stay on top of the game. Interesting. And so like your commitment essentially became a commitment to, to making this another generation of the farm. Yes. Now I will say they, they always said you can change your mind. Like it's not the end of the world. How, how far does the farm stretch back? Um, so in, uh, 18, 19, eight generations ago, this dude came to Ohio and he really wanted to farm. Um, but instead he helped found the town. And um, so he only got one little piece of ground. Um, and so that was homesteaded in 1824. And so then his children, what would it, like, I'm curious, like, like how does this stretch back to like going from this dude setting up a town and running a homestead to, you know, now you're, you're, you know, graduating from college and, and working with your father on a farm. Yeah. It just, I mean, slowly, surely, they were large families, of course, and, you know, people would split off and do, like, their own farms, because back in the day, you know, it was like everyone around here had 50 acres, um, and so slowly over time, people moved into cities and got jobs there, and just, I guess my dad stuck around long enough. <laughs> Do you have memories of like your grandfather around the farm and, and sort of that connection there? Uh, yeah. So, uh, he passed away when I was eight to 10. So I don't have really, uh, memories going back. I do kind of remember him being around. I know he had a golf cart that he would drive around the barnyard getting places. Um, but I do live in his old house now. So I actually feel more connected to him just because I renovated that house and I got to see all of the interesting things uh, that went into building it because he, he was actually like one of the guys that helped build it. So like we would find random newspapers and walls and stuff like that. Wow. That's amazing. And now, so, so you, you get out of school and you graduate from Ohio state, you know, you're, you're got your business ag degree. You're like ready to go. Like, what does that transition look like? Or did it ever stop and, like, you were working all the way through college? Like, like how, does, how does that work? Okay, so during summers, I came home and worked. Um, my schedule was very rigorous, um, especially my first two years with cheering. So I really now get where I got to get away. Um, but I graduated on, I think, a Saturday. And that Monday, I was working, which meant on that Sunday, I was really stressed packing up everything, getting home. I have no idea why I didn't give myself like a few days. Um, and that first year was a hard transition because I was living in Columbus. It's a larger city. I actually really enjoyed city life. And, you know, I moved back here. All my friends were dispersed all over the country. And I didn't have Grubhub or Uber Eats anymore. <laughs> So it was just, it was sort of a culture shock to go back to what you came from, from where you were. Right. Yeah. I, I had been here for 18 years, but readjusting actually took, took more out of me than I expected. Now, like, you know, my relationship with my parents, right. It's very different now than when I was a kid. 
but I also have this luxury of, you know, they live about two, three hours away. Like, you know, it's not like I'm seeing them day in and day out. How has your relationship with your father changed from like when you were 14 to, you know, now? Oh my gosh. We are, we're like two peas in a pod. We spend too much time together. Like we are the people that work all day and then he'll send me three texts in the evening and then I'll call him and then we'll go to the gym together. It's, <laughs> it's maybe too much at times and we have to set boundaries with ourselves because we will just talk farming all day, every day. Um, but we are very, very close. But, but like, how do you separate like the family relationship from say the friendship that sounds like formed from the business relationship that exists between the two of you? Um, yeah, it's, it is, it is a hard boundary because you have to think, okay, is he saying this as my dad or as my boss, and now technically I'm his boss, <laughs> um, which we have not. I, I took over the farm on January 1, um, and he has showed up to work every single day. I don't think he understands that he's retired, um, but it's like now I have to say, okay, no, this is what I want to get done today, and that that is interesting. We're still navigating it. So, so talk a little more about that. Like, the the transition that actually happens where it goes from he is the owner he is the lead to you are now the owner you are the lead he's helping you out he's working for you're paying him I'm I don't know like as much as you're comfortable talking about it, I'd, I'd love to understand how does a transition like that happen yeah okay so um in I'm looking at my notes in 2019 we formed an LLC and when we did that, he was a 51% owner and I was 49. So for three years, we were partners, but he still had that 1% um, above me. So he could really, you know, if we had a disagreement, he's like, no, I'm, I'm in charge. Um, so, so it was good having like that three years. And now um, I have, I've purchased the, with loans. Uh, all of the equipment and half of the grain. So yes, like I own it, but I also owe him a lot of money. And also he is my landlord because the land is not in the LLC. So technically he still <laughs> can pull some strings above me. Oh, wow. <laughs> that, that That's like, it seems so interesting to, to be able to say that, Hey, this is a family farm. But you also have to recognize there's a corporate structure that sits behind the family, essentially. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because, like, when we were drawing up the contracts with our lawyer, he was like, technically, you guys should have different representation. But also recognize that, you know, we were a family and we're trying to work it out together. Yeah, no, definitely. Now, as you look at the business of the farm... You know, you mentioned kind of you, you'd done mostly grains, but, you know, your dad had a cow-calf operation, and now you're just focused on grains. Like, how does the the vision of what the farm's going to become ultimately evolve as you, like, take hold of the farm and, and sort of chart the course for the next, I don't know, 30, 40 years, call it? Um, you know, it's really interesting. I, I've told myself for, for this year, I'm just going to get through the first year. Um, just because fertilizer prices are crazy right now and it is like a lot of change. And so I am like, I am just going to make it through this year <laughs> before reassessing. Um, and we have a lot of 
really large farming operations around us that kind of set the price for land. Um, and it's a really competitive market. And so my goal is to keep everything cash flowing <laughs> and make it work for now. And then, you know, I, I'm fine with reassessing and I'm also, I'm not, I'm not putting pressure on myself as of now to, you know, get huge, expand. I don't, I don't want to be the largest farming operation. But, but what do you want to do say 10 years out? Like, like what, what's your hope for the farm, even just short intermediate term, right? Like 10 years from now. Um, 10 years from now, I'd really like to have a few new tractors. Uh, we have a grain setup that I would like to get, um, we, we just, we'd like things to be a little bit different. It'd be a little bit smoother. Um, right now our bottleneck. So when you're harvesting, you know, you might have not a large enough combine. You might not have enough semis. You might not have a large enough grain setup right now. Our, um, dryer is our bottleneck. So we can get all the corn harvested, but we have to wait for it to go through the dryer. So I would really like to get a bigger dryer setup going in the future. Got it. So, so it's, it's recognizing kind of, kind of the infrastructure improvements that you can make, but still staying on sort of the same focus in terms of the business, the crops, like where, where you put your energy and time and, and what you hope to yield. Yes. And because, you know, it, it would be awesome if, you know, 200, 300 more acres came up, but as we stand right now, we probably couldn't handle it. So we, you know, it's like, we want to set ourselves up for in the future, if more land ever does come up we would be able to handle it. Right. And, and as you think about like the farm business, you know, how much of it is just saying, Hey, we need to achieve more scale because that's going to be ultimately what gets us kind of more and more profitable versus say changing our crop mix, changing our focus, changing the markets we sell through. Like, like how much of, of those things do you think about changing versus not? Yeah. So our markets around here are pretty steady. We have an ethanol plant that we sell to and some co-ops. So it really doesn't make economical sense to change the markets that we're sending to. Um, just like, even if we were to switch to like organic, say there's no outlet for us around here. So we're a little bit stuck in what we are producing. So it is, it is, it is just trying to make everything more efficient. Got it. Okay. That, that's, that's interesting. It's, you know, so as somebody who write like no agricultural background, but also no legacy, like the amount I can experiment changes versus, you know, the tradition, the legacy and the infrastructure that you currently have, how hard that, that, that can make it to change. But that must be freeing too, to a certain extent, right? Where it's like, you do have a course, you do have a business model, you do have sort of general levers that you know what can be pulled and what can't be pulled, correct? Yes, very true. And like my dad has definitely done, so his 50th farming season will be next year. So he has done all the experiments now, obviously new stuff is coming out every single year. Um, but you know, if I bring up an idea very often, he'll say, Zoe already did that. I've done that. I've tried that. It didn't really work for us. So, so how do you combat that? Like when you, when you feel like it's like, Oh no, it's already been done before. Like, like how do you like drive evolution or you do you say, no, okay, I'll just, just go with the wisdom. Oh no, I, de I definitely, uh, push my way. I, it's, it's very slowly introducing ideas and saying, you know, well, it might be this and here's, here's an article I read and then slowly, but surely it becomes his idea. <laughs> That's interesting. So it's, it's really, how, how do you influence? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
So as you think about, you know, kind of what you're building, like, are there other things that you, you think about, like, in terms of planning and, like, say, the next generation and the generation after that? Like, like do you see yourself in that chain in, in terms of what, what sort of legacy you're trying to build with the farm? Um, so as a person that doesn't have any kids, I do have one nephew. Um, he's three, and he is obsessed with farming. So if he doesn't change his mind in the next, you know, 20 years, I think I do have someone that could take it over, but... I'm not putting pressure on a three-year-old, uh, but I, it would be awesome if this continues on. But also, uh, I think as farmers, we get really wrapped up in everything revolves around the farm. And I do have to just tell myself, like, if something horrible happens, it's totally fine. Um, it's, it's simply not going to be the end of the world if the farm doesn't continue. I would love it to. But as of right now, you know, we just don't know. <laughs> right. Well, and, and, you know, I have so many friends, right? And, and they have, like, small farms, homesteads, and they are always trying to think about, like, what can I do to motivate my kids to be interested in wanting to be part of it? Or, no, they just want to, like, sit inside and play video games or something like that. Like, what advice would you have for folks who are in that situation where they aren't trying to inspire their own kids based on your personal experience mm -hmm. where it seems like, yeah, with, with the American Girl doll uh, bribery, your dad was able to inspire you to get connected to the farm? Yeah, I think, I think not pushing it because I definitely have known people that had to work on their farm growing up and it became more of a, oh, I have to do this, not a, I get to do this. And my dad would take me to the fun things. So he, like back in the day, John Deere every year would have a meeting where they'd show you all the new equipment. And I loved going to that meeting. Um, and I was like, you know, six to 10 when I went to those. And just, you know, taking, taking kids to something here and there and just showing them the possibilities, I think really gets people's attention. If you were to give anybody advice around, you know, kind of the, the form of farming you're in, where it's kind of a more traditional grain-based farming, what advice would you have for somebody who's a newbie thinking about it and exploring that space? Talk to your neighbors. Talk to farmers in your area. Um, I really think going to other farms and seeing what they're doing was working for them. You can learn from other people's mistakes and not your own. And honestly, in my experience, people love showing other people their farms. So there you have it. Zoe Kent of Kent Family Farms of Ohio. Um, I really enjoyed sitting down and chatting with Zoe uh, the other day. You know, I think she's just got such an interesting story. And when you think about it, right, going from, you know, Ohio State cheerleader to, you know, running the family farm in the span of a couple of years, it's, it's just super impressive and, and such a such a cool thing. And, yeah, I love watching, um, you know, how, uh, you know, the relationship with her, her and her father um, kind of developed and, and how it goes and just – Zoe actually has like a TikTok account and uh, actually let me share that with you guys and just bring that up. And uh, it, it's so much fun. And so if you're on TikTok, you should definitely um, check it out. Uh, but it's, it's a uh, farm with Zoe and uh, yeah, you should, yeah, take a look. Um, 
you know, she shares just a ton of videos there and it's, it's great stuff. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, if you guys have suggestions too uh, for other interviews, let me know. Usually it's tough for me to get the interview lined up with when I'm recording the, uh, the podcast itself. So sometimes they like this one was, you know, shows up as, as pre-recorded. But now is the part of the podcast where I want to try this and, and, and do something a little different and, and change this up a bit. Uh, this is the open call. So if you guys have questions in the chat, I'm going to start to hit some miscellaneous grab bag topics and, and we'll get into it. First one coming from Tracy Fairley. So how is the Peachum Community Housing Facebook page doing? Oh, Tracy, I love that you asked this question. So, so some background for, for folks. Um, you know, if you're wondering, we have a, a local nonprofit here in the town of Peachum, Vermont, where I live, called the Peachum Community Housing. I'm actually on the board of it. And, and really, it's a group focused on providing affordable housing and housing for the elderly here in Peachum. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I think the, the, the fun thing is they have a Facebook page and I was promoting it here on a, a Facebook live stream the other week. And it went from having, I think, like 20 people following it to I think there's about 500 plus people following it when I checked it the other day, um, which is crazy because we're a town of like 700 people. Uh, but if anyone wants to check it out, it's the Peachum Community Housing uh, Facebook page. Uh, take a look either if you're on the podcast or or the live stream. They do good work and you'll actually see some posts from me occasionally because I'm often the one doing the social media managing there, um, either me or my friend Ali. So, um, <clears throat> all right. So what other questions do we have? Oh, Renee's got a good one here in, in terms of what surprised me about my interview with Zoe. You know, hey, I, I think the thing that surprised me the most is sort of how thoughtful the succession planning that, you know, her father put into passing the farm to her. You know, so often I hear these family far farm stories where it's like it becomes a struggle where it's like never talked about at all. And the older generation passes away and doesn't really set up a firm plan with the younger generation. And like, you know, one of the siblings wants to continue the family farm, but the other two don't. And then you have to sell it up or break it into pieces. And then financially that doesn't quite work. Um, you know, they didn't do that. Like her father pretty made, made it much made it clear. And I think Zoe has actually two other siblings, but they, they made this a plan so that the farm would pass from him to Zoe who wanted to be the full-time farmer. And, and so, um, yeah, I think that's probably the thing that surprised me most. And I am super impressed with just how thoughtful they've been about doing that. Um, so yeah. <clears throat> All right. Other questions. Um, Okay, here's a good one. What was the first bird you wanted on the farm? Well, Laura, the first birds we ever got on our farm were ducks. And they were the first birds I wanted on the farm. I, I've always loved ducks. I've been super passionate about ducks. Um, I think that they are funny. I think that they are really good for our climate and our setting and our context. Um, I, you know, I think they are just really interesting to watch as well. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, I'm a big duck fan. You know, in fact, actually, I love answering questions about ducks. And, uh, you know, just this morning, um, I got a question from some folks about why don't our ducks feet get frostbite? You know, it was like negative seven, negative eight degrees this morning. And, you know, our ducks were out walking around. They didn't get frostbite. And so I actually shot this video explaining what happened and uh, I actually posted on TikTok. But here, let me share it with you guys here. 
People often see our ducks in our freezing cold temperatures and wonder, why don't their little ducky feet ever get frostbite? I mean, we see them walking around on all the ice and snow on your farm, and they never ever seem to get frostbite. And well, the answer is, ducks and geese have this special blood exchange that happens between their feet and the rest of the body. You know, the rest of their body stays nice and warm because it's waterproof, and they've got their own built-in down coat. The blood from their warm body gets pushed down to their cold feet, and then the blood from their cold feet gets pushed back into their body. That constant circulation of blood from the feet to the body, it's what prevents them from getting frostbite even when it's as cold as it is right now. Now, and So there you have it. That is why a duck's feet, or a goose's foot for that matter, doesn't get frostbite. And, and for those of you guys who saw the video version of that, or if you saw the TikTok, uh, or I think, even think I posted it on Instagram or somewhere, um, you'll notice that Jeannie Barncat like totally steals the show of that video. Um, Jeannie has become like an absolute diva celebrity. I think it's like ever since she was featured in the article about our farm um, that was in the Boston Globe, like she has been like, you know, like showing up everywhere and she's become super, super popular. And she, she has a tendency to show up in a lot of videos where I don't even intend to feature her, but just, she loves riding my shoulder. Like I said, um, and all right, Charlie is asking me the question of how are you finding the transition from day job to full-time farmer? Um, you know, Charlie, it's interesting. I really enjoyed it. I didn't think I was going to, I thought I might struggle with it a little bit. I, I actually really did like my day job. I liked a lot of the work that I did. But uh, I have been like, like, it's been blissful ever since I left. Um, I have, you know, pretty much set up a pretty rigid schedule. So I, I think I, I can't exist without having like scheduling myself. Um, so I keep a calendar. Um, I get up every morning. I work out. I then go outside and do the chores and work with the animals. I, oh, I also do some writing usually first, first thing in the morning, like when I first get up. So it's like usually like five to six, I'm writing six to seven, I'm working out seven to like nine. I'm usually outside, um, doing my animal chores. Also usually shooting a video, like the last three days I've shot videos, um, at that same period of time. Like the one that you just saw me, that's a portion of a, a video that'll be out like on YouTube next week, I think. Um, then from there I come inside, either I'm working in the office, continuing to do work on our book. Um, and by the way, if you guys are wondering, yeah, the, the book is in, in imminent. I'm excited about it. I think it's going to be so good. I think people are going to absolutely, um, uh, you know, like they're going to, um, they're going to, they're, they're, I think you guys are going to like it. I think you're going to be enjoy it. Uh, so yeah. So I work on that. I also have some other business meetings. I'm working on starting this beef jerky company, which I might talk to you guys about in a future podcast. Um, and, and so I spend a fair amount of time there. And, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, then, then I kind of work on stuff, projects around the house right now. In the summer months, I'll be doing a lot more work outside. This time of year, I'm not exactly driven to, like, spend a lot of time working outside when it's negative temps. Um, but I occasionally will go out and do stuff. And, uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm loving it. I, I, I think it's been great so far. All right, next question. Suzanne asks, hi, you probably answered this, but dying to know what happened to lil's mama okay so you guys see this barn cat this, this little fluffy one that i just woke up who's sleeping behind me oh look at her oh isn't that adorable <laughs> so that's a little barn cat she was a barn cat she is a house cat now after she was hit by a car um had some horrible injuries but she's recovered she's got an interesting story so um 
Lil Barncat's mother was uh, she was actually a stray cat that some friends of mine found in an abandoned house. So my friends Nick and Zia found her uh, mother in an abandoned house and she was pregnant and they took the cat in and the cat, her name was, they named her Big Edie because she big, big, hefty, healthy cat. Um, and she just had this like way of sort of sprawling out there. And yeah, she, she was named Big Edie and she ended up having, I think five kids because she had Lil. She had a cat by the name of Balerian. She had a cat named Ruth Jr. And Balerian and Ruth Jr. actually are still with Nick and Zia. Uh, she had a cat named Juniper, who is actually still with our friend Ruth. And then she had a cat named Kitten, who actually, unfortunately, uh, got lost outside and, and has been missing for a couple of years and so presumed dead. And so, so yeah, so the five of them were, were her kittens. And um, they, they've, it's funny because we all are friends still. Like, so all the kitten parents are friends. And so we've had, like, birthday parties for the kittens. And even though now, like, Lil's almost four years old, we still call them kittens. Um, unfortunately, some sad news about Lil's mother. She actually passed away a couple of months ago. I actually heard from Zia that, uh, she had, uh, I think lymphoma and, and she had, she, she passed away. So, so it's unfortunate. It makes me sad, honestly. Um, but she was a good mom and she produced Lil and I'll, I'll be forever thankful for Big Edie. So, uh, take a moment of, of silence, just a thought for, for Big Edie. Okay, Debbie asked, any idea if the cows are pregnant? I think they are. I'm seeing some signs that would suggest that they are pregnant. The cattle, since they've been here at our farm, have not. none of the females have gone into heat at all. They're all two years and older, so they should be going into heat if they're not pregnant. And so I haven't seen any of those signs. Um, they're getting bigger, too, uh, especially three of them are definitely seeming like they're heftier. And so my hope is that they actually calve in June. Um, which would make sense from a calendar perspective based on their previous owner and when he put them with the bull. I'm also this, uh, probably like in May, going to be building a shoot for managing the cattle. And when I do that, my hope is that's going to make life a little bit easier for um, <clears throat> uh, uh, managing it. Ashley Lynn uh, asks, have you found anything cool when renovating your home? So the answer is yes, Ashley. Probably the coolest thing I found is some graffiti from the 1920s from some schoolgirls. So in the room that's actually right across the hall from my office here, it's it, it was a bedroom. We actually converted it into a bathroom and laundry room. Um, on that wall, there's handwriting from um, Marion Shaw and uh, Agnes Shaw, who were two girls who were born in this house lived here uh marion i think she lived to be about 80 and agnes lived to be like 90 something and uh they passed away a couple of years ago but they were the shaw girls who grew up in this house and and they have graffiti on the wall that's still there we we preserved it even as we did the house renovation and so i'd say that that's one of the coolest things another really cool thing i found was a cattle brand so richard shaw who was a farmer here like in the 70s or eight. 70s 1870s um and in the barn i actually found his old cattle brand just rb um and so um uh yeah <clears throat> there you go so Lindsay, i found a couple deer sheds i actually think 
Hold on, let me see. I think I might have one back here. I do. So, so here you go. Here, here is a deer shed that I have found. Um, so, so I occasionally find them. I don't find a ton of them. And so I'd much rather just keep them as artwork around the house than, um, you know, trying to sell them, but they are very cool and I'm very grateful for them. <clears throat> All right. We got time for three more questions here. And, and by the way, guys, I, I love any feedback you have on, um, uh, this new format of the podcast. If you want to share the podcast with your friends, that's great. If you want to write reviews, that's great. You can, again, find us on Stitcher, uh, uh, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, any of the platforms, we're there. All right. <laughs> uh, Janie saw the video that saying that I'm quitting. Janie, I'm quitting my day job. I think you missed the news. Yeah, no, I, qu I quit my J job. So I'm not quitting YouTube. I'm not quitting Facebook. I'm not quitting farming. I quit my day job and I'm focusing on the farm full time. That is that is my plan. I'm, I'm super excited about it. Okay, Robert asks, do I meditate at all? You know, Robert, I have tried to meditate many times. I should meditate. I, I've, I've heard so much about the, the value of it. When I've meditated... Um, uh, you know, I, I actually, I really enjoyed it, but, uh, I just never get around to doing it and I always get distracted. And so I, uh, I, I completely don't do it, but I should do it. It's a really good practice. Okay. Maureen asks, do you edit your own videos now? So yeah, so these days I edit some of them. I also have a friend who, she helps me edit a lot of them as well. So, so my friend Valerie, um, she will actually do like some of the initial editing and then I'll do some of the final editing myself, um, just so I can do more videos basically. Um, because if I didn't, I could only probably do like one or two a week versus I'm putting out probably three or four longer videos plus, you know, maybe a dozen short videos. Um, and so that helps me. And then finally, how many acres of trees are rolling over this year for profit? Um, well, Charles, that's a good one. So uh, in terms of like acres, I don't, I don't know. So we've got about 10 acres space with that are densely planted with chestnuts. I overplant. So, you know, like most recommendations would say 20 feet apart. I actually put them 10 feet apart because what I find is not every plant's going to take. And so I'd much rather overplant and have to thin than underplant and have one or two that are dead and then have to replant it and then be a couple of years behind. You know, when it comes to planting trees, time is like your biggest challenge. And so over planting and thinning is so much cheaper and easier to do in the long run versus under planting. So I guess my, my, my answer kind of manages that a little bit. I planted about 220 additional trees in this past year, about 92 of them, I think was the exact number. Um, were, were replants for plant for trees that had died or just weren't thriving. Um, and then others, I've, I've set up some new rows like in different parts of the farm. And so, um, yeah, I don't, I know that's not really answering your question, but, uh, I think it kind of gets to the root of your question. So the guys, that's it. If you want to learn more about Zoe Kent, be sure to check out Kent family farms. I'll leave a link to the show in the show notes. If you want to, um, 
you know, connect more with us, just look for Goldshaw Farm wherever we are, whether it be YouTube, Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, this podcast. We're around. We're going strong. You're going to see more of this. I got another episode lined up for, for next week, and um, I'm really excited about it. And I can't wait to bring it to you. It's already recorded. So I can guarantee you that that episode is going to happen. But I'll be back with another podcast. And thank you to my live studio audience. This was so much fun. I really enjoyed doing this with you guys. And I hope everybody has a great, great night. It's got a soul, this hero farm. It falls asleep inside my arms. We work the fields. Under the stars, the love is here at Goldshaw Farms. A city life yet had its charms, but we would dream of the fields under the stars. I fall asleep inside its arms, the love is here at Goldshaw Farms, the love is here. Here at Gold Shop Farm.